Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 46 this time. Last time ended with the importance of being wise and faithful servants in this time between Jesus' first and second coming. Remember, that's how it ended last time was Jesus was commending the wise and faithful servant. The passage continues now with the importance of being ready for Jesus' second coming. The importance of being ready for Jesus' second coming. Since Jesus is coming back, we must be ready by making sure that we are truly saved by being productive with the resources that he's given us and by intentionally serving the needs of others. There are three things that just stick out in this passage. Now, Jesus is going to give two parables and he's going to close this section, the Olivet Discourse, with an explanation of a judgment that is yet to come. So first of all, two parables. Now, these parables illustrate what it means to be ready. The first parable illustrates the importance of being ready and watchful and making sure that you are a genuine Christian, that you're truly saved. The second parable illustrates the importance of using all the resources that God has given us to serve him in this time between his first and second coming. And then the last section talks about the importance of doing practical ministry to the body of Christ and to people that are in need. The first parable begins in verse 1 of chapter 25. It's about 10 uh, virgins is what it says, but you could think of 10 bridesmaids. That's more accurately what's going on here. Don't think of them as virgins, as you know, girls that have not had sex. This is about bridesmaids. Verse 1 says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. This is a parable to stress the importance of being ready for the second coming. He says, the, then the kingdom of heaven, right there in verse 1. So he's referring to his second coming. You know, over the last few weeks, you've been learning, if this was new to you, that Jesus, just as sure as he came one time, is coming back a second time. And so he's been telling the disciples in chapter 24 and 25 how they need to be ready and how they need to view uh, their lives in light of that second coming. And so he says, then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to 10 virgins. Again, these are like bridesmaids. And they go out, it says, who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. So this is dealing with a wedding in this ancient culture. Now, marriages took place in different stages in this culture. One of these stages involved a groom coming with his bride to the marriage supper. So one of the stages, the last stage, the bride and the groom would come together and they would go to a marriage feast or a marriage supper. Now, the bridesmaids would be alerted to the fact that they're, the bride and the groom, they're coming, they're going to the feast. They'd be told about this and they were expected to be ready and they would get up and they would follow them and they would all go in to the feast. So this is where this is set. Now, the bridesmaids, they go out to meet the bridegroom. Now, they took their lamps because it would be nighttime when this would happen. And so they didn't have the nice street lights like we have today. And so you'd need the torches to light up the procession. They go out to meet him to join the procession going into the feast. Now, 
Verse 2 says, five of them were wise and five were foolish. Now, this is what Jesus is going to use to teach here. He's going to say, to be ready, you know, in light of the second coming, you need to be wise. And so he's saying, five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. So he's contrasting those who are ready and those who are not. He's calling the one foolish and the other one wise. Now it's interesting because the foolish and the wise, they do the same thing. They come out, they've got the lamps, and they slept and slumbered. But there's one difference between them. Did you notice it there? Simple. They didn't bring oil. The, the foolish ones didn't bring oil for their lamps. The wise did. Now, there was a delay between the bridegroom's coming. Notice that what it says in verse 5. But the bridegroom was delayed. While he was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Now, what Jesus is doing here is he's hinting that there's a gap between his first coming and second coming, right? Now, in this parable, it doesn't tell us a lot of details. And, and let me say this. There are a lot of interpretations of parables. And where people really try to take every element of the parable and make it mean something, it's not wise to interpret parables like that. They, they mean one thing. There's a simple lesson, and this one is just about readiness. Now, there's no visual difference between the wise and the foolish. And that's an important detail. The only difference is no oil, but they're slumbering and sleeping in the gap. Between in, the, in the time where he's delayed, and they all have their lamps, so they all look pretty similar. In verse 6, at midnight a cry was heard, and behold, the bridegroom, uh, says, behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins also trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. So you see the problem here. They're, they get the call. They get the sign. They get up and they start trimming their lamps, and one group says, Man, give us some oil. The other one says, no, you got to get your own oil. In verse 10, while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding. Now, there's the key. Going into the wedding is going into the kingdom. When Jesus comes back after the great tribulation period, he's going to set up his millennial kingdom. And some are going to go in with him that are alive during that time. And in this parable, they're the ones that are prepared, the wise ones. Notice what he says there. Uh, the foolish, or, I'm sorry, verse 10. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding. That's the point. And then notice what it says right after that. And the door was shut. Okay, and that's very important. There was no second chance. If you weren't ready at his coming, there was no second chance. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he, he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Once the door was shut, the master, you know, the bridegroom said, I don't know you. It was too late. There was a definite cutoff. 
Because the foolish were not prepared, they were not able to go in. The door was shut and there were no second chances. Jesus applies the parable in verse 13. Notice it there. He says, Watch therefore, for you, neither, uh, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now that's the point. Be ready. Be watchful. Now, in the parable, let's, let's talk about the meaning of it. You know, in a parable, like the different elements of the parable represent something. And like I mentioned before, there are people that take this to extremes. There's just as many virgins as there are in the, you know, in the parable 10, there's at least 10 interpretations where people take all these different elements and try to apply them. The very simple meaning is what Jesus says, watch therefore. And there's something going on here. Some people are not going into the kingdom and some are, and it's because they don't have the oil, Right? That's the whole thing. And so are we saying entrance to the kingdom is you need to have oil? Well, yes, but the oil must represent something. Now, oil in Scripture is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. You read through the Bible, you see the oil is always a symbol of the Holy Spirit, his work. Here what we have is the symbol of the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. Now, there are people that have interpreted this parable to say that there are some Christians that don't have the Holy Spirit and some Christians that do. That's not a biblical statement whatsoever. All Christians have the Holy Spirit. In the book of Romans, it says if you, know, if you don't have the Spirit, you're none of His. Um, all kinds of places in the Bible, it talks about a, you know, a Christian. Uh, every Christian has the Holy Spirit. Now, not every Christian walks in the Holy Spirit. That's a different conversation. But here, this isn't saying that there are spirit-filled Christians that are going to go into the kingdom and there are non-spirit-filled Christians that are going to get kicked out. That's not what this is saying. This is saying simply that although there are some that are professing genuine faith, they're professing to be Christians, there's no work of conversion in them. There's no work of the oil of the Holy Spirit in converting them. And so what happens is the door is shut. They have fallen asleep spiritually on some sort of false assurance. And there comes a point to where it's too late. They've, they've allowed themselves to sleep and slumber, which that's not the problem. The other ones were doing that too. But to sleep and slumber in false assurance, that's an issue. So the first application that jumps out of this really, you know, right to us is we need to be sure that we're really saved. Now, if you guys have been tracking along the last few weeks, we know that Matthew 24 and 25 is it's applied to the Jews that are alive and people that are alive during the tribulation period. The application is also the same for Christians that are awaiting the rapture. Now, wherever you fall on the view of the timing of the rapture, the application is the same. It's you need to be ready for the return of Christ. You need to be sure that you're saved. If the rapture happens before the tribulation and that happens and you're not saved, that's a problem. That's a problem for you, right? If you're alive in the tribulation period and Christ comes and you're not saved, that's a problem 
for you. So, so the application is the same for the church or the Jews or the people alive in the tribulation period. It's to know that you're saved. Now, you might be asking, how can I know that I'm truly saved? And I'm going to give you a few things here today that you, you and I can scan ourselves with these things to see if we are truly saved. Now, first of all, the most important one is, do you trust in Christ's death on the cross alone for your salvation? Or are you leaning in some sort of other work? Are you leaning on the fact that you have completed a religious ritual? Are you leaning on the fact that when you were young, you were baptized? When, are you leaning on the fact that you're a pretty good person and when you get to heaven, God will look at your good works and he'll let you into heaven? All of those things um, need to be abandoned and a person that is truly saved is one that is trusting in the work of Jesus Christ alone what he did on the cross. That's the first sign. That's the first way that we can scan ourselves to see if we are truly saved. Are you trusting in Christ alone or a combination of Christ and your works or a combination of Christ and church rituals? We must trust in Christ alone. And if, if you're trusting in Christ alone here today, you will know that you know, this is how you know that you're truly saved. The next one that I have here is, do you live in obedience to the Lord? Now, Obedience doesn't earn salvation. Obedience is a surefire proof of a person's salvation. A person that lives in obedience to the word. Remember what Jesus says, if you love me, you will what? Amen. He says, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Obedience to the word of God and a desire to please him are signs that you're truly saved. Another one is, are you growing in Christ-likeness? Are you growing in Christ-likeness? That's a sign that you have the oil, so to speak, that you've been converted, that you've, you know, become born again, is that you're growing in Christ-likeness. If you look at your walk today, if you look at your Christian life today compared to what it was last year, are you more like Jesus this year than you were last year? Because this is a surefire sign that somebody has the oil, so to speak, right? Do you have the indwelling witness of the Holy Spirit? Has the Holy Spirit transformed how you view life? Have you been comforted by the witness of the Holy Spirit? Have you been corrected by the witness of the Holy Spirit? The Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes into the life of the believer and causes the believer to call out, Abba, Father, which is like saying, Daddy, do you have that internal witness of the Holy Spirit that lets you know that you know that God is your Father. This is evidence of true salvation. Does the Holy Spirit teach you spiritual things? When you read the Bible, does it come alive to you as the Holy Spirit illuminates the Scriptures? Peter says in his second epistle in chapter 1 that we are to make our calling and election sure. I'd invite you to read that for your homework. Read 2 Peter chapter 1, and I want you to read and think about where he says, make your calling and election sure. In other words, know that you know that you're saved. Since Jesus is coming back, we must be ready by making sure we are truly saved. Number two, now we are going to look at the parable of the talents, starting at verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country 
who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Now, obviously in this parable, Jesus is the man traveling to a far country. And what he does is he gives talents to his servants. Now, this isn't talents, uh, you know, like you can, uh, you know, juggle. Talents in this parable, this actually talent is a unit of weight. And when we look at verse 26, it says um, that this is money. What this is referring to in this parable is money. And if you want to get more technical, when you look at the Greek word translated money in verse 26, it's a word that means silver money. So what that means to us here is the man that was given five talents was given about $150,000. A lot of money, a lot of resources, and so on. And notice this detail there. He gave, uh, verse 15, uh, to one he gave five talents, to the other two, to the other one, to each according to his own ability. So this master going away, he divvies out his resources to his servants, each based, you know, according to their ability to do something with it. Verse 16 these servants now, they're going to manage the master's money while he's away. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Notice in verse 19, after a long time, this is Jesus again alluding to the fact that there is a gap between his first and second coming. So two of them double the money. Doesn't say how they did it. Probably with eBay. Just kidding. One of them doesn't. The third hides it in the ground. He does nothing. During this gap, it would be tempting to think that the master's not coming back, wouldn't it? With such large amounts of money. Maybe he's not coming. Maybe the one with the one talent looked at what the other ones received and thought, you know, I haven't been given as much as everybody else, so I'm just not going to do anything. Could be. Notice what the master will do after a long time at the end of verse 19. He comes and settles accounts with them. He individually speaks with each one and says, what did you do with my money? No. The master judges the first two servants in verses 19 through 23. Verse 20, I'm sorry, verse, where did verse 19 go? Verse 20 through 23, the master judges the first two servants. Pardon me. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, 
saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who had received the two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Notice that they received the same identical commendation, even though one made more than the other one. Very important key to understanding our life with Christ. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Those who are faithful stewards of what God gives them will be rewarded in the kingdom. In this parable here where he's talking about talents, he's talking about money. It's by extension, it's just resources that God, ha- that God gives to his people. You could, be, uh, you could be applying this accurately by saying literal talent. God's given me musical talent. Maybe he's given me artistic talent. God has given me that artistic talent that I might use it for his glory. And he's going to come one day and he's going to say to me, Adam, what have you done with the artistic talent that I've given you? He's going to come settle accounts. Maybe you have a talent for administration. You know how to do the books. You know how to organize. Whatever it might be. Maybe you have a talent for doing hair. I'm not your client. (laughs) Or Neil. Maybe you have other resources like the abundant amount of wealth that we have as Americans. Maybe you have other resources such as time. Some of you are retired. Maybe you have other resources such as breath in your lungs, a heartbeat. God has abundantly blessed each person in this room with a plethora of resources And he will certainly come one day and say, what have you done with all of the things that I entrusted to your care? Verse 24, then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you've not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look here, have what is yours. Now, this servant made some bad excuses. First of all, he calls the master bad. (laughs) I know you to be somebody that goes and just takes where you didn't even plant. Really? So you're saying I steal? I knew you to be a hard man. Oh, you know, serving the Lord, I don't know if I should do that because he's hard. No, Jesus says his yoke is easy. His burden is light. There are people that refrain from serving the Lord because they think he's a hard man. Jesus says, on the contrary, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. This guy took the money that was given to him, he buried it in the ground, and he made a bunch of excuses. And look what Jesus says to him. 
But his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers and at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. You know, in other words, he takes him right at his word. This is how you know me to be. Well, if that's true, if you thought I was such a hard man, you should have at least put my money in the bank. You know, that makes more sense because then I would have interest and at least it would be protected in the bank. There's something else going on. Maybe the guy didn't want the money to be put in the bank. So when the master didn't come back, there is no record of it being his and he can keep it for himself. It's speculation, but it's how humans tend to work, especially wicked and lazy ones. Verse 28, so take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He calls him a wicked and lazy servant. Wicked because of his improper thoughts towards God. Lazy because he did nothing with the resources God had given him. Now, laziness is not a virtue, even though our culture esteems laziness. I remember the first, you know, cultural uh, role model for laziness, Garfield. He's the first one I remember. That guy didn't like Mondays. All he wanted to do was sit around and eat lasagna all day. And the culture esteems laziness. You know how else you can tell that our culture esteems laziness? Go to Walmart and go look at the t-shirts where they say, don't bother me, I'm sleeping, or stuff like that. Go through the Walmart t-shirt section and see if anybody that makes these t-shirts is concerned about the mental health or the spiritual health of the people that buy these things. And you ask, which one's first? Is it the dog wagging the tail or which comes first, the chicken or the egg? We sell these shirts. That's another subject. Our culture esteems laziness. But the Bible says this about it in Proverbs 26, verses 13 through 16. This is funny. The lazy man says, there's a lion in the road, a fierce lion in the streets. In other words, like, go out and get a job, dude. Oh, I can't. There's a lion out there. It might get eaten. (laughs) And then it goes on in Proverbs 26 and says, as a door turns on its hinges, so the lazy man on his bed. It's like he just can't get out of bed. He's just, you know, he or she is just connected to the bed and like they just flip-flop back and forth. Like the alarm keeps going off and they keep turning it off and they keep flip-flopping back and forth on the hinges and they're lazy, you know. And then at the end of it, it says, uh, this, is, this one's funny too, but I mean, it's really not. He says, the lazy man buries his hand in the bowl. It wearies him to bring it back to his mouth. Like here, you want some salad? Yeah, I'm starving, man. You want some Cheetos? Yeah, here's a bowl full of them. Oh, okay. Are you going to eat them? Uh, I can't get my hand back to my mouth, man. Can you do that for me? Yeah, I got it. <laughs> well, how about I just lay on the ground with my mouth open? You just pour the whole bag of Cheetos in it, man. You know? <laughs> and then it says, finally, the lazy man is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Aren't lazy people so crafty at being able to like, explain why you're wrong about everything? They're wiser in their own eyes than seven men that can answer sensibly. They got a lot of thoughts and a lot of uh, things to say, but they're, tr- they're not producing anything. Most of them are going to be on pills eventually to manage their anxieties and their suicidal tendencies. And 
It's because it goes against God's very nature for us. Look at Genesis 2.15, for example. Oh, you don't need to turn there, but it says, Then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. Genesis chapter 2. That came before Genesis chapter 3. You know what that means? It means Genesis chapter 3 was the curse. God gave man work to do before the curse. Right? Verse 28 says, take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. If you don't use the resources, somebody will. For to everyone who has, verse 29, more will be given. He'll have an abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken. In other words, use it or lose it. Now, <clears throat> the unprofitable servant is unmasked to be proven that he's not a servant at all. She's not a servant at all. And so appropriately cast into outer darkness. The meaning of the parable um, God has given us all resources, and we need to use them for his glory. That's what we're supposed to be doing. If you want to be ready for his second coming, whether it's for the rapture or whether you're somebody that's alive in the Great Tribulation or a Jew, like in this passage, you need to be using the resources God gave you, the brains you have, the family you have, the car you have, you know, every single thing. And let me give you just a little application for this. Go around your home tonight when you're there and walk around and look at every single thing in your home. And put your hand on it and say, God, this belongs to you. And go to the next thing and say, God, this belongs to you. And open up your phone and look at all the people in there and say, all these relationships, they belong to you. Every single thing I have, God, belongs to you. And then sit there and say, Lord, what do you want me to do with these things? Right? That's a great application for anyone. Every single thing that you have, every dollar you have, every penny you have, every single thing that you and I own, God's given it to us. And he will come on a day, and he will say, what have you done with this? Now, since Jesus is coming back, we must be ready by making sure we're truly saved, by being productive with the resources that he's given us. Now, number three, he's done with the two parables. Now he's going to talk about the judgment of nations. Now, there are many judgments in the Bible. This is another one of them. This is not referring to the great white throne judgment that comes at the end of the millennial reign. This is a judgment that comes at the end of the tribulation period. And notice what it says there. Uh, it is a judgment of the nations. The judgment of the nations. Okay. So this is referring to Gentiles at the end of the tribulation period. Verse 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. This is also the separation of the wheat and tares. This is a judgment that is coming for the Gentiles' nations at the end of the tribulation period. There are Gentiles that are going to live through the tribulation period, and when Jesus comes... He is going to separate them as sheep and goats or wheat and tares to decide who gets to go into the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, you can read about this in the book of Amos. It's in chapter 3. This is called, uh, Amos refers to this. He says this happens in the valley of Jehoshaphat. He also says this is the valley of decision is another way that it's described. This is a judgment of Gentile nations that have lived through the great tribulation. So 
the shepherd, what he does is they all are drawn to him and he uh, separates them right and left, sheep and goats. Verse 34, the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? Or when did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to, the, to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So you see what he's saying? He's got the nations, the Gentiles drawn to him at the end of the tribulation period. And he says to the ones on his right, the sheep, he says, go ahead and enter into the kingdom reign. Good news. Why? Because you did all these works of kindness. Well, to who? He says in verse 40, he says, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren. So the question is, is who are my brethren? Commentators debate this. They say, is he talking about the church, all Christians, all people that were saved during the great tribulation? See, because according to the pre-tribulation doctrine, the church is out of here by this point. And now Jesus is judging the Gentile nations that live through the tribulation period, and he's judging them based on their works of kindness that were given to my brethren, according to verse 40, right? Who are my brethren is the question. If typically when Jesus refers to my brethren, it's, to, it's about Jews, typically, so what that would be saying is there are Gentiles alive during the great tribulation period that did works of kindness unto the Jews, which would mean a lot because if you've read about the great tribulation period, this is a heavy time of persecution against the Jews. So likely what Jesus is saying is you guys come into the kingdom because you were kind to my brethren during the tribulation period. Now, you could certainly extend this, you know, to all people because God's character is such where he wants us to care for the needy all among us. But I think that's what this passage is getting at. That's, my, that's the interpretation I align with is that he's talking about people that showed kindness to the Jews during the Great Tribulation. Now, some will come and say that's just evidence of the fact that they were converted but the strict interpretation of the passage says that the basis was their works of kindness, their mercy. Verse 41, then he will also say to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, 
Inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So at this judgment of the nations, those that have shown works of mercy to Jesus' brethren, whoever it is, the church, the Jews, they will go into the millennial kingdom with Christ. And those who during the great tribulation period have not done these works here, this is what they will be judged on. Some of you read this verse and say, this is terrifying. Well, this applies to a judgment that is coming at the end of the tribulation period for the judgment of nations, referring to Gentiles. What do we get from this, though? God desires his people to do works of mercy, feeding, clothing, giving refreshment to all people, especially his brethren, especially the church. So how can we apply this to our life? This is very timely because you could, if you want to do these works of mercy and you, and you want to minister to his brethren, to his people, to his church, you can grab one of the directories that Stevie put together back there and you could take that directory home and you can start by looking at each name on there and you could start by praying for them. Now, secondly, and you could do this whether you're young, whether you're old, Old, young, doesn't matter who you are. Anybody could do that. Could go start praying for the people in the directory. Now, the second thing that we could do is we could start calling them or texting them possibly and just chatting with them or encouraging them. Uh, that could go from being like, what do you need done at your house? You need your lawn mowed. Do you need any, you know, can I help you with something? And you see how this could just multiply and multiply? And we could be the sort of people, continue to be, and we already are, we could continue to be the sort of people that do these works of mercy and, and do these sort of works. Uh, providing refreshment for people, feeding them, clothing them. Since Jesus is coming back, we must be ready by making sure we're truly saved, by being productive with the resources he's given us, and by intentionally serving the needs of others. In conclusion today, as you can tell, Jesus does not want us to be spiritually asleep, resting on some false assurance with only the outward appearance of a Christian. He expects us to be ready, watching, making sure that we're truly saved. He expects us to make the most of the resources he's given us. They all belong to him. He expects us to be intentionally serving his people in practical ways, showing mercy and kindness. That's what it means to be ready. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word here today. And we pray as you've spoken to us, God, that we would be able to go therefore and live as you desire. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.